Back in the days when judges led Israel, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Malon and Kilian, all Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Elimelech died, and Naomi was left, she and her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, the second Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next ten years. But then the two brothers, Malon and Kilian, died. Now the woman was left without either her young men or her husband. One day she got herself together, she and her two daughters-in-law, to live in the country of Moab and set out for home. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and give them food. And so she started out from the place that she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Judah. After a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, Go back, go home, and live with your mothers, and may God treat you as graciously as you have treated your deceased husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. She kissed them, and they cried openly. They said, No, we're going on with you to your people. But Naomi was firm. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters. On your way, please. I am too old to get a husband. Why, even if I said, there's still hope, and this very night got a man and had sons, can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, dear daughters. This is a bitter pill for me to swallow more bitter for me than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. Again, they cried openly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth embraced her and held on. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back home to live with her own people and gods. Go with her. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go, and where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die, and that's where I'll be buried. So help me, God, not even death itself is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in. And so the two of them traveled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this really our Naomi after all this time? But she said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life, and God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Why would you call me Naomi? God certainly doesn't. The strong one ruined me. And so Naomi was back, the Ruth, the foreigner with her, back from the country of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, good morning. My name is Rich. I'm the uh, youth pastor here at Grace Community, and I uh, love working with our teenagers, but every once in a while I get the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you as well on Sunday mornings, and so really excited to have that uh, opportunity to speak to uh, those of you here in the main and uh, those of you over in the link this morning and anybody that may be watching online also. Uh, I really consider it an honor to uh, be able to open up our series on the book of Ruth, and uh, Ruth... Is, is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It has drama, 
It has tragedy. It has mushy stuff like love and relationships and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it is absolutely one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible ties together. The entire Bible ties together to speak of one theme, one mission, one common person, and that is Jesus Christ. And the story of Ruth is an amazing reminder that God is committed to his people. God will stop at nothing to redeem his people, to literally buy them back with a never-stopping, never-ending type of love. And so I have been planning for this for like two weeks. I have been stuck in Ruth chapter 1 for two weeks, and I am ready to bring it this morning. I tell you, it may feel like 7, but I'm bringing it like it's 8 o'clock, you know, because I am pumped about this. And so we have a great morning that's, that's planned for us this morning. Um, if you need a Bible, put up your hands. Uh, an usher will be around to, uh, to give you a Bible. And, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there to Ruth chapter 1. It's an Old Testament book. And so uh, what you do, you find Genesis right at the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So we are going to learn the truth about the book of Ruth this morning. That's a little preacher humor for you that's really not very good. So uh, there you go. Uh, the Bible is living and active. The Bible is living and active. And the more that you dig into it, the more living and active it becomes. And what I love is that only the Holy Spirit can take a story that happened thousands of years ago and make it come real in our lives today. And that is what he is going to do in your life this morning. That's what he's been doing in my life. Oh my goodness, as I've been just studying this for the past two weeks. So it is going to come alive to us this morning. It is going to be living. It is going to be powerful. God's word does not come back void. And so once you find uh, the book of Ruth, look at chapter 1. We're going to go ahead. What I'm going to do this morning is read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. So that's going to be kind of the pattern for this morning. But let's look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now we're just going to stop right there because that one verse, verse 1, sets everything up in the entire book of Ruth. And so we're just going to figure out exactly what is going on and what is happening. First part of that verse, in the days when the judges ruled. What does that mean? Well, if you want to find out what that means, turn back one page in your Bible. It's the last chapter of the book of Judges, the last verse. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, kind of tells us what it was like in the days when the judges ruled. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days, when the judges ruled, Israel had no king Everyone did as he saw fit. And so that pretty much sums up what it was like in the days of, of the judges. The days when the judges ruled was a time of spiritual decay. It was a dark, dark time in the history of Israel. It was a time when God's people were surrounded by people that did not believe in the God of the Bible. God's people were surrounded by people that were not believers. And 
and, and, but instead of, of living a life of following God, instead of living differently, instead of shining brightly, instead of standing out, what they did is they began to give in to the temptations that were around them. They began to give in constantly, consistently to sexual immorality, to greed, to idolatry, and they were willing to put anything before God. That's what the days of the judges were like. Now, not only, as we see in verse 1, not only is it a time of spiritual decay, but it's also a time of economic decay as well, because verse 1 tells us that there was a famine in the land. So what is going on here is there is no food on the table. There's no way to earn a living. There are kids who are hungry. There are families who are hurting. And this passage doesn't say it uh, specifically, but when you look in the Bible, every time that the word famine is used in the Bible, if not every time, nearly every time the word famine is used in the Bible, it speaks of God's judgment upon his people. And so what would happen, and this was going on especially in the days of the judges, that God's people were doing anything but depending upon God. And so what God would often do is he would send them something that would teach them, you need to learn how to depend on me. And so that is why God would sometimes send famine to teach his people that you, you need to depend on me. Forget about all this other stuff. Depend upon me. And so even though this passage doesn't directly say that, that this, was, this famine was a judgment for God, I think it's probably safe to, 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 to think that it, that it was, that it was a judgment from God. And so in this setting... In a setting of spiritual decay, in a setting of economic decay, a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. Don't name your son that if you're pregnant right now. Uh, His wife's name, Naomi. That's an all right name. You can use that one. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Do not name your sons that. Malon means sick. Kilion means puny. Way to set your kids up for success right there, dude. Uh, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, a few interesting things about just those two verses. The word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Now, isn't it ironic that a man from a town called the house of bread is leaving Because there is no bread. (laughs) You know, there's famine in the land. And so he's leaving to try to provide for his family. And when I first read this, when I first read this passage, my initial thought was this. My initial thought was, Elimelech is doing a good thing. Elimelech sees that he needs to provide for his family. And so he is doing a good thing. I mean, seriously, I would do anything anything to provide for my family. If my family is hungry, I am doing anything to provide for them. Even if it means I have to get a job at that place that buys gold right across from Kroger, and I have to jump up and down on that horse and wave at every car that goes by, man. If that's the only way that I can provide for my family, you better believe I am buying the biggest cowboy hat I can find, the most obnoxious pair of chaps I can find. I'm even going to wear skinny jeans if I have to. I am going to dance. I am going to give people a show, and they are going to buy that gold and sell their gold and everything, and it's going to be awesome. I would do everything to provide for my family. So at first glance, at first glance, 
It looks like Elimelech is doing a good thing. But when you dig further, you realize that he was leading his family into an awful situation. The Israelites and the Moabites hated each other. The Israelites and the Moabites hated each other. The Moabites were actually the product of an incestuous relationship between this guy Lot and his daughter. And you can read about that if you want to in Genesis chapter 19. And so uh, Lot's daughter gets Lot drunk, sleeps with him. They have a baby boy named Moab. From there, the Moabites come. So in the Moabites did not worship the God of the Bible. They worshiped a false God, an idol named Chemosh. And, and so worship of Chemosh involved orgies and child sacrifice and all kinds of great things like that. And so Moab was no place for God's people. The country of Moab was no place for God's people to be. There would be no community with other believers. There would be no accountability from other believers. But Elimelech, whose name interestingly means, my God is king, decides not to allow God to be king. He decides to take matters into his own hands and he moves his family away from community with God's people to a place where they were most likely the only believers in the God of the Bible. And he did that all for food. He did that all for money. He did that all for comfort. And as we read on in the story, we're going to find that that decision led to tragedy. And men, let this be a lesson to us. Men, let us learn from this. Because as men, we all feel the pressure to put food on the table. We all feel the pressure to provide a roof over the heads of our families. And it is not easy at times. It is hard at times. And there are times when the checking account is looking pretty empty. And we're tempted to compromise our integrity to make life more comfortable. We're tempted to hold our tithes back from God to make life more comfortable. We're tempted to maybe cheat on our taxes to make life more comfortable. And my advice is do not do it. Do not compromise your integrity for the sake of comfort. Men, you are the gatekeeper of your home and your decisions have the potential to lead your family to trust God or to lead your family to turn away from God. And so men, you decide You decide that your family comes to church. You decide that your family is going to tithe. You decide that your family is going to serve. You decide that church is important. You decide what you will allow to influence your family. Men, let us learn from this because we need to lead our families well. And so as we continue to read on in the story, when Elimelech left Bethlehem. He left community with God's people. He relocated his whole family to Moab, and he did this to spare his family from death. Now, let's look at verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, what? Died. Why did Elimelech move to Moab? To, To not die. What happened? He died. Just the irony. There's a whole bunch of irony in the, uh, in the book of Ruth. And so um, Elimelech moves his family to Moab to not die. But when he gets there, he dies. And so it says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah. Please don't name your daughter that. And the other name was Ruth. 
After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And so we see right in this story that the unthinkable happens. We see right at the beginning of this story that tragedy sets in. We have the death of a husband and a father, and we also have the death of two sons. And so Naomi has lost her family. She is left as a widow and she is left without sons. And in that time, in that day, in that culture, that basically meant that she had no means of support because it was a very male-dependent culture back then. And if you did not have a man in your life, if you did not have husbands, if you did not have a son, you were often simply forgotten about and you were left on your own. And so the future for Naomi is looking incredibly bleak. Now let's uh, look at verse 6, and we're going to read on to uh, verse 10. It says this. It says, When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. And so what we're seeing in those verses is that they decide to leave Moab. And along the way, these three women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, along the way, they decide to stop and have a conversation. Why did they do that? Because it was three women. Three women will stop and they will have conversations. It's what ladies do. If it was three guys, they would have stopped to burp and scratch themselves. That's what guys do. They would not have stopped for directions. They would not have stopped to go to the bathroom, that's for sure. But it wasn't three guys, it was three ladies. And so they stopped and they had a conversation. And in that conversation, Naomi is telling her daughters-in-law that there is still hope for you. The future is very bleak for me, but there is still hope for you. And Naomi says, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest. Now that term, that word rest that's used specifically there, specifically refers to finding security and protection under a husband's love. And so it's not the idea of taking a nap on a Sunday afternoon after church. It specifically refers to finding the security of a husband. Because again, in a culture that was dependent upon men back then, marriage meant security for a woman. And so Naomi is trying her best to look out for her daughters-in-law. Let's go ahead and look at verse 11. We're going to read to the first part of verse 14. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah 
kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. We're going to stop right there. And so what is going on here is, is Ruth, or I'm sorry, Naomi, Naomi just wants the best for her daughters-in-law. She just wants the best for, for them. And so she's telling them, you need to go find a husband. You need to have security. You need to have somebody to take care of you because you're not going to get that with me. And she's like, even if I would find a man tonight and we would go honeymoon at Greencroft and I got pregnant and people were throwing up in their mouths at the thought about it and I had a baby, would you, would you wait for that baby to grow up so that you can marry that? She's like, don't wait for me. Go off on your own. Find a husband. And Orpah listens. Orpah honestly does the logical thing. The best move for for Orpah was for her to find a husband. And honestly, we cannot blame her for what she did. We cannot blame her. She was following the wishes of her mother-in-law. She was leaving with her mother-in-law's absolute blessing. So we really cannot criticize Orpah for the decision that she made. But it's really interesting to note that Orpah was looking out for her own best interests. She was looking out for her own happiness. She did the ordinary thing. And we never hear from her again. Orpah did what was common. She did the ordinary thing and we never hear from or hear about Orpah again in the rest of history. But Ruth's response was extraordinary. Ruth's response was different. Look at the last part of verse 14. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to Naomi. That verb clung, what, what the idea behind that verb right there is, is the idea of as if adhering, as if glued firmly. It's the idea to hold on tightly or tenaciously. It's the idea that if you want to get rid of me, good luck, because you are going to have to pry my cold, dead hands off of you, because I am not letting go, I am not leaving. And then Ruth says something that is just absolutely amazing. There might be some of you that even had these verses read at your wedding, but let's look at verses 15 through 17. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Do you know why we are reading about Ruth this morning? Do you know why we're reading about Ruth and not Orpah? Because Ruth did something extraordinary. 
We're reading about Ruth today because what Ruth did was extraordinary. She, the commitment that she showed was amazing. And you remember stories of commitment. You remember stories of not quitting. You remember stories of not giving up. Orpah quit. And she did the ordinary thing and we never hear from her again. But Ruth demonstrated an extraordinary commitment that simply did not make sense. But God honored her decision so much that he said, I'm going to write about you. God honored her extraordinary commitment so much that he said, people for centuries, for thousands of years need to hear about this. So I am going to allow this to be recorded in my word to people. Ruth's And and seriously, the more you think about what Ruth did, the more you think about what she said, the more amazing her commitment becomes. Because Ruth's commitment to her old, frail, widowed mother-in-law is astonishing. Because you think about what that meant. It meant first that she's going to leave the comfort and security of her family and her hometown. So she's leaving everything that she has ever known. Second means that as far as Ruth knows, she is giving up any opportunity to marry, giving up any opportunity to ever have children. Third, it means that that she's moving to a place that hated the Moabites. I mean, think about that. Remember that Ruth is a Moabite and the Moabites and the Jews hated each other. And so this is the equivalent of a Jewish girl moving to Nazi Germany in World War II. It's crazy. She's moving to a place where there is going to be extreme prejudice against her, and she knows it. And then finally, she's committing. She's saying, I'm never going to go back home again. I am leaving everything I have ever known, and I am never going back home again. Because she says in verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth is pledging herself to Naomi. Her commitment is more than just an obligation. It is a covenant. It is a vow. It is a, an oath. Naomi had nothing to offer Ruth, but Ruth still pledged herself to Naomi. She said, Naomi, I am not leaving you. I am not running away. I am not going anywhere. And if I do, may God deal with me severely. If I even think about leaving you. Reading about Ruth because you always remember the one who did not give up. We're reading about Ruth because you always remember the one who doesn't quit. And the question that I want you to think about this morning is this. Where in your life do you need to honor your commitments? Where in your life do you need to say, I am not quitting? Where is it in your life that you need to say, I am not giving up? Where do you need to show that tenacity, that uncompromising integrity to never, never give in, to draw on every remounting ounce of strength that you have uh, left so that you can fight until you can fight no more. And so you can say, I am not I am not giving up on this. What are those areas in your life where you need to to honor your commitments to not give up? 
Just two months ago, there were many of you that I'm sure made New Year's resolutions. Two months ago. And it's been two months, and, and probably many of you have already given up. And uh, two months ago, you felt like you needed some type of change in your life. You weren't happy with an area or a habit, what, whatever it was. And so you committed to change. And, and the question is, how are you doing? How are you doing with that commitment? Uh, commitment is hard. Resolutions are hard. But I'm telling you, you always feel better about yourself when you don't give up. You always feel better about yourself when you don't quit. And you may fail, you may mess up, but you just keep trying. If you fall down once, you get up twice. If you fall down twice, you get up three times. If you fall down three times, you get up four times. You just don't stop. You just keep going. Because the issue is not your strength. The issue is God's strength working in you. And God's strength is limitless. How are you doing with those commitments? Some of you in here are ready to quit on your marriage. You're ready to quit on your family. You have forgotten that before God and witnesses, you made a vow, you made a covenant that you would tenaciously hold on to your spouse until someone had to pry your cold, dead hands off of them. And you're ready to give up. And for most people that are ready to give up, they're ready to give up because I'm just not happy anymore. And, and I know this sounds harsh, and I'm sorry that this sounds harsh, but I just want you to know it's not about your happiness. It's not. It's about you doing the right thing. It's not about your happiness. It's about you doing the right thing. And some of you are giving up when you need to hold on. Some of you need to go to your spouse today and you need to tell them, you need to say to them, I know you hate me. I know you want nothing to do with me. I know that you are ready to be through with me, but I made a vow to you. I pledged myself to you and may God deal with me ever so severely if anything but death comes between us. And you need to tell them, I am going to do whatever I need to do to become a better husband, to become a better wife. I will go talk to anybody that I need to talk to. I will pay whatever I need to pay for counseling, even if you don't come with me. I am going to do whatever I need to do to become a better husband, to become a better wife, because my word is my bond and I am not giving up. Even if you do nothing and offer me nothing in return, I am not giving up on the vow that I made to you. Where do you need to honor your commitments? Maybe you've been praying for, a, like me, praying for a family member or praying for a friend or praying for a coworker for a long time. You want to see them free of bondage. You want to see them free of addiction. You want to see them free of poor choices. You want to see them saved. You want to see them enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you've been praying for a long time, but you just haven't been seeing anything happening. You haven't been seeing any results. And so what's going on is you begin to pray less and less and less because you're just not seeing the results that you're wanting to see and my encouragement to you is don't stop. Don't stop praying for them. Don't give up 
praying for them. I have three brothers that are not believers. I have been praying for them since middle school. That's 25 years. 25 years, and I will not stop praying for them until they come to know Jesus Christ. Don't stop. Even when you don't see the results. Even when you feel like, you feel like God's not doing anything. Keep on praying. Pray hard. Pray earnestly. Some of us need to be more committed simply to the people of the church. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that, that we are to be devoted devoted to one another, to honor one another above ourselves. And, and how, how are you doing that? How are we doing that? How are you investing your life in someone else here at Grace Community who is a part of the body of Jesus Christ? How are you serving here? How are you investing your life into another? Are you discipling someone? Are you mentoring someone? Are you serving the people of Grace Community? How are you being devoted to the people here at Grace. Where do you need to honor your commitments? And again, something that that I just think is super cool about the Bible, something I love about the Bible is how the Bible points everything back to Jesus Christ. The Bible points everything to Jesus. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the star. And whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, God has not given up on you. God has not given up on you. The story of Ruth is an amazing story of of human commitment. But the bigger picture is this. The bigger picture in the book of Ruth is, it's a picture of God's commitment to us as well. A people who had absolutely nothing to offer him And yet, even when we turned away from him, he remained committed to us. And so you can choose to run. You can choose to hide. You can choose to say, I don't want anything to do with God. You can choose to do those things. But I just want you to know, he does not quit. He does not give up on you. And his love has a way of wearing people down. And so he will always come after you with a never stopping, never giving up type of love. And that's the amazing thing about God. He could have said, they blew it. Forget them. He could have said, because they don't love me back, I'm not loving them. He could have said, I'm sorry, but they don't make me happy anymore. But God made a promise and God will always do what he says he will do. In good times, in bad times, if you love him or if you hate him, God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God does not give up on you. And he will not. And this commitment of God plays out amazingly throughout the story of Ruth because we'll see that, that this is a commitment to, to, this is God's commitment to Naomi and Ruth. And, and what's beautiful about this story is we're going to see how God redeemed a horrible tragedy into something absolutely amazing. And what I, what I know, I've been in church long enough, I've been here long enough to understand that there are probably some of you in here that you've turned away from God because of something hard that has happened in your life. 
you've turned away from God because of something hard that you've gone through. And, and just so you know, that's exactly what Naomi did. Naomi did that in this story. You can see that in the last part of the chapter that Naomi felt abandoned by God and, and pretty much has turned her back on God at this point. Let's look at, at verse 19. Verse 19 in Ruth chapter 1 says, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Is this Naomi? And the translation of that is, Naomi, you look horrible. Holy cow, what happened to you? What is going on? What happened? The years have not been good. Tell us what happened. And Naomi does. In verse 20, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. A couple interesting things. The name Naomi means fair or pleasant, or sweet. So at the beginning of this book, beginning of this chapter, Naomi was fair. She was pleasant. She was sweet. She was a keeper. She was a sweetheart. But not anymore. She says, call me Mara. And the word Mara means bitter. She's like, call me bitter. Why? Because I'm bitter. I am bitter. I'm a bitter old hag. Call me bitter. Have you ever met a bitter old lady? Aren't they fun to deal with? No, they are not fun at all. I used to wait tables and there were several times that I waited on some bitter old ladies and they do not make life easy. Let me tell you, I was thinking about, all I was thinking about the whole time is, I wish I could pour some hot coffee on you, man, because you are just making life miserable. I'm sorry, I'm just being honest. I'm not sinless. Uh, so I just wanted to do that. You know, I waited on old ladies, bitter old ladies, who made my job so tough that if they would have fallen down on the restaurant floor and would have been like, I've fallen, I can't get up, I would have been like, you're on your own. I'm not helping you. I am looking for coffee to pour on you. You know, that is what I would be thinking. And so, so Naomi is bitter. But in my mind, there's something refreshing about that. Why? Why would that be refreshing? Because I th think about it this way. Which of us wouldn't be bitter if we just had to bury our entire family? Which of us wouldn't struggle with that? Which of us would not have some anger toward God if we just had to bury our entire family? Which of us would not have some questions for God if we had to do that? Too many times, too many times when we come to church, we are way too willing to be fake. 
Too many times when we come to church, we are way too willing to put on a good front. We are way too willing to pretend that everything is okay when we know that everything is not okay and we're not real with each other. And a lot of times coming to church is often like this. You walk through the doors and somebody's like, hey, how you doing today? And you're like, I'm great. I'm doing great. I got my accountability group. I got Jose Cuervo, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, the four of us together, we're doing great, you know? When you know you're not. And we're so willing to, to, to just be fake with each other. And if Ruth's virtue was commitment, Naomi's virtue is simply honesty. There's something refreshing about that. Naomi, how you doing? I'm doing horrible. I'm doing awful. God and I just are not getting along right now because I have no clue as to what he is doing. Have you ever felt like that? Naomi is just being honest. But what's important to notice here is she's being honest in the presence of God's people. She's back into community. She's back into accountability. She's back where she belongs. And in that setting, there should be, there should be the freedom to share that life is difficult right now. There should be the freedom to simply share, I know this is not where I'm supposed to be emotionally. I know this is not how I'm supposed to feel spiritually. I realize this is not right, but it's just where I am right now. I'm angry at God. I have questions because of what's going on in my life. I don't understand why he's doing that. At some point in your life, when you follow God long enough, you are going to be unhappy with him. At some point in your life, you're going to be unhappy with him because he does what he wants. And sometimes what God wants is not what we want. God answers to no man. And there are times when what seems right to us is not in his plan for our life. There are times that what looks good to us is not what God knows is best. And sometimes because we live in a sinful world, sinful things happen to us. And we have to bear the brunt of people's stupid, sinful, evil decisions. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that, God has not given up on you. And even though we may not understand it, God is absolutely committed to you. Naomi's not there yet. Naomi's not at the point where she's able to acknowledge that and able to, to, to accept that. And, and what I understand is many of you are not there yet either. Many of you are angry with God or you're upset with God. Uh, and, and just so you know, God's big enough to handle that. God is big enough to handle your questions. He's big enough to handle your anger. But the hope is this. The hope for us today is this. Chapter one is not the end of the story. Chapter one is not the end of the story. We saw at the beginning of chapter one, chapter one, verse one, there was a famine in the land. That's how the story starts. The end of chapter one, what does it say? They arrived during the harvest. It was the beginning of the harvest. And so there's hope. 
You may feel like you're in a famine right now, but the hope is this. That's not the end of the story. What is waiting for you is a harvest. And if you come back for the rest of this series over the next three weeks, you're going to see an amazing story of God using an outcast for his glory. You're going to see God turning a tragedy into the redemption of the world. And what I know for sure is this. The chapter of your life that you're in right now, if it's a really hard, difficult chapter, is not the end of the story that God is writing for your life. There's hope. There's a harvest that is waiting for you. God has not quit on you. Let's pray. God, um, thank you for, uh, for Ruth's um, just extraordinary commitment. Thank you that, you that you honored that so much that you had it written down in your word so that centuries later we could read about it. Thank you, God, that we, that we get to learn from this. And, and, and not only are we challenged to be more committed to each other, but God, um, we just see how committed you are to us and that you have not quit, you have not stopped, you have not given up on us. And so, God, what I, what I pray today is that today is, is the beginning of each of us just getting an amazing understanding of that. And for those in here, God, who, who may feel like that, that they're just wrestling and struggling and they don't know what you're up to, I pray, God, that you will be incredibly real to them. I pray that you will just help them to understand and, and realize that you have not quit, that the story is not over. And God, that you are walking beside them every step of the way. And I pray for all of us in this room, for everybody over in the link, uh, God, I ask that you will just be real to us and that we will just get a better understanding of, of just the commitment that you have to your people. There's a verse in uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 that simply says this. It says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And I, I love that verse because we often sing to God and, 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 and just imagine just the feeling oftentimes that we get whenever we sing back to God, whenever we, you know, just rejoice over him. And that same feeling that we have, I, I honestly believe that, that God kind of feels that way too when he sings over us. I love that. I love singing to my kids. Um, every night when I put my daughter to sleep, um, Jesus loves me. That's what I sing to her. And I love singing over her. And, and the song that we're going to hear right now is, is a song where you just get to sit and just take this in and just realize that this is God singing these words over you. That he does not stop. He does not quit. He is there with you every single step of the way.